Amen. Well, again, good morning and welcome to Freedom. We will invite our kids who are in the sixth grade and below. They can follow Miss Lynn, our children's minister, around to Kids World for their teaching time. Uh, it's a joy to welcome in not only the folks who are in the room, but those of you who are joining us online. I, I mean it when we say we are thrilled to have you be a part of worship uh, in this way. And, of course, throughout the pandemic, we have had uh, an increased number of people who watch online, both around the country and in other parts of the globe. But uh, here locally, a lot of our home folks who have uh, chosen to watch from home, we certainly understand that, but we're glad to have you be, be tuned in in that way. Today, we're going to uh, wrap up the current series about learning to pray, and we're going to dive into that in just a moment. If you want to get your outlines out, I'll invite you to uh, to do that, and we'll jump into that in just a minute. But I want to take just a little bit of time on the front end just to talk with you before we turn our attention to the Word. I really debated whether or not to, to touch on this today because I, I know people just get so exhausted with having to think about what's going on in the world around us, but I really felt compelled to do this. Among the things that, that I'm called to do as your pastor, I mean, the, the most fundamental calling that I have is to function as a shepherd. And there are only a handful of things that shepherds are expected to do on a regular basis but one of them is to do everything that they can to protect the flock that God has entrusted to their care. And I take that really seriously. And so the things that I'm about to share with you are purely motivated just by that. My heart is really burdened because of the season that we're in. I, I can't ever remember a time in American history where I have seen more people more confused than where we are right now. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? that we have heard so much conflicting information, particularly over the span of the last nine months, that, that we just are a confused nation. The church is confused. America is confused. I think in many ways the world is confused. And I want to just talk with you today for just a few minutes, not from any slant, not from one side or the other, but John and I were having a conversation about this right before the service. John made the statement. He said, people today don't know who to trust because it seems like everybody who's talking has an agenda. They, they want to move us in this direction or move us in that direction or they want to tear somebody down or lift somebody up. And we need to be able to have some voices who don't have any agenda other than to just say, here's what's going on and here are the things that we can do in response to that. So for just a few minutes, let's talk about that. And I'm talking specifically in relation to the pandemic. Now, right now, I'm glad to say that the news isn't all bad. There's some really good news, and there's some really sobering news, and they're all coming at the very same time. And I know a lot of what I'm going to say, stuff that you've already heard, but I hope today is going to hopefully, hopefully help us to, to refocus and just get some healthy perspective about where we are and where we go from here. I'm sure most of you read or heard this week very encouraging news concerning the pandemic, that we are at a place that we are about to see vaccines probably begin to, to get emergency approval so that they'll be distributed. It looks like there's a good chance with Pfizer's announcement this week, which was very good news, that apparently theirs is going to be about 90% effective as vaccines go. That is very good news compared to the flu vaccine. That, that was very encouraging news. And they are expecting to be able to treat about 25 million people by the end of the year if they're given the approval that they expect. That would be great. That's a, that's a tiny dent, but it's a move in the right direction. <clears throat> Pfizer would expect to treat about 650 million people in 2021. That's another big step in the right direction. 
Globally, that's less than 10% of the world's population, but that is moving us in the right direction, and there are some other companies that are likely within two months of being able to produce a vaccine. All of those put together can really get us moving in the right direction, and fair or unfair, right or wrong, Americans are going to probably have quicker access to those vaccines than the rest of the world. So sometime next year, you and I are going to have access to vaccines for this disease. That's a cause for encouragement and relief. Much of the rest of the world is going to get access to this in the coming year or two. So praise God for that. That is a gift from the hand of God. Vaccines are not developed this quickly. By the grace of God, this is happening. So we give thanks to God for that. That's the good news. Now the sobering news. I know we've heard enough bad news this year. And that's part of why I really labored over whether or not to even address this today. But because... We have heard so much bad news, and because the message has become so convoluted and distorted over time, I think it's important for you to hear where we are right now. We are today at the worst place that we've ever been in relation to the pandemic. There is relief on the horizon, but it is far enough on the horizon that we cannot just become complacent and say, well, we're going to have a vaccine soon enough, and it's going to do what it's going to do anyway, so I'm just going to go about my life. We can't afford to do that. Christians particularly can't afford to do that with blatant disregard for the health and welfare of others. I'm going to state what we do know about the disease. And before I say these things, I'm going to say to you, you will have heard exactly the opposite of what I'm about to tell you. You will have heard what I'm about to say, and you have heard the exact opposite. And some of you are going to go, oh, that's not true. I can back up everything that I'm about to tell you. These are the facts. Right now, the disease is spreading at a rampant rate that we've never seen before. The two other spikes that we saw this year did not touch where we are right now. We're seeing 150,000 new cases per day in America, and it's running way past this. We were at a bad place a month ago. The rate of spread has tripled in one month's time. The number of Americans who have died from this disease, now I'm talking... I know there are people outside the country who are seeing this. I'm talking right now about America. A lot of what I'm going to say is about America, even though it's a global pandemic. But the number of Americans who have died from this disease is at least 255,000. I know of all the things that I can say, that will be the most disputed. And I'm here to tell you that is a fact. And I know there are a lot of people who are going, oh, no, 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 no. They're calling everything COVID. Here's the thing we've just got to accept and get over. The number of people in America who die each year is a very predictable and knowable number. For 2020, the number should have been 2,875,000 people. I'm a numbers freak. I know that. I am an absolute numbers freak. John knows what what a numbers nerd I am. It's a very predictable and stable number. But you know what the number is going to do for this year? It's going to exceed that by more than 300,000. Statistically, that can only happen under about three conditions. You either have to be in a world war, terrorists have to be setting off nukes on a monthly basis, or you have to be in the worst pandemic in 100 years. Nothing else will explain that. I know not everybody's into statistics. I am. You can get a fluctuation of 1% or 2%, but you cannot get a fluctuation in the number of deaths in America of more than 10% unless you are facing the worst pandemic in world history. I mean, in the last hundred years in the world. That's just a fact. This is not a matter of people explaining away deaths by other causes and saying, oh, it was COVID. You cannot get to where we are unless you're in a pandemic. We are actually underreporting statistically 
the number of deaths as a result of this disease. So people who have told you, oh, they're doing it for this reason or for that reason, are misinformed. It is a fact that we are in the midst of a global pandemic. It's killed far more than a million people globally. It is killing, in both America and globally, between 25 to 3% of all people who get it, period. That's just a numbers fact. Numbers don't lie. I understand there are people who write it off and say, yeah, but most of those people are elderly or people who have pre-existing conditions. So what? Do we as Christians not care about the elderly? Do we not care about people with pre-existing conditions? Of all people on earth, we should be the most compassionate. We are in the midst of the toughest season of the greatest challenge of our lifetimes. To put it in a little bit of perspective, I said only three things could explain what's happening in terms of the deaths that we're seeing. I said World War could do it. Actually, World War, as we have known it, wouldn't explain this number of deaths. The United States was involved in World War II for about four years, from 1941 to 1945. You know how many Americans died as a result of that? 405,000. In nine months, a disease which has far has not come close to running its full course has killed 63% of that many Americans in nine months. We are at risk of seeing as many Americans die in the first year of COVID-19 as we saw in four years of World War II. We should be gasping at that thought. Now, I refrained from saying some of this in the last few months because what I'm talking about had become so politicized that people assumed if you address this either, you were either speaking as a Democrat or you were speaking as a Republican. I am not speaking from either position. The election is over, and whether we like the outcome or we don't like the outcome, it is what it is. We don't get to vote anymore about that. We just have to accept and face what is before us. Now, the other thing that people want to argue about is whether we're wasting our time putting on these masks. And I want to tell you, there is virtually no one on the face of the planet who is an epidemiologist or a public health expert who's going to debate this matter. The masks make a difference. They make a very big difference. They don't guarantee that you won't get the disease. They don't guarantee that nobody around you will get the disease. But where people practice social distancing and wear masks, the numbers are significantly lower than in places where they disregard this. We have to do our part. If we don't want to see the economy shut down and nobody under the sound of my voice wants to see the economy shut down, I certainly do not. Then let's do the things that we can do, which means... Yes, we wear these dumb masks for a few more months. Yes, we social distance and we refrain from shaking hands. We avoid large gatherings, and we test the limits of that. We socially distance in here, but we're testing the limits in here. We're going to begin to compress our services in terms of time frame and some of the things that we do to try and keep this as safe as we possibly can because this is just too big of a risk right now. We've got to find ways to get through the next few months. The masks do help. One of the appeals that I'm making to you today is be very thoughtful about how you plan your holidays. We, we love Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we love all the get-togethers. And just this week, we've had to make the hard decision that lots of other people are making to significantly alter our plans. We're not going to be able to do the get-togethers that we've done in the past because we want to keep people around us safe, particularly those who are older than us and who have health conditions. And so we're going to refrain from getting together. I'm not telling you what to do. 
But I am telling you, please be thoughtful about what you do. And please be mindful not to fight for your rights. The most common thing, I know you hear the same thing that I hear. How many times have you heard in the last few months, I'm just done with this whole COVID-19 thing. I'm just done with it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the mess and I'm done with it. Aren't you so grateful that 75 years ago that our grandparents and their generation didn't say nine months into World War II, I'm so done with this World War thing. I'm so done with it. It's inconvenient. It is inconveniencing my life, all the rationing, all this stuff. So I'm done with it. Let the Nazis have what they want to have. Let the fascists have what they want to have. Let the Japanese do what they're going to do because I'm done with it. Where would we be today if a generation had just bowed down and said this is too inconvenient? This is the challenge of our generation. Let's don't be less than what they were. Let's follow through. Let's do our part. And I'm going to say one other thing that you never hear me say. I'm very guarded anytime we talk about political issues in terms of ever saying what my personal political position is on anything. And I'm fixing to violate that today for a very particular purpose. The people, by and large, who are most likely going to want to write off or explain away the things that I've just said are people who come from the same camp that I've lived my whole life in. I'm a political conservative. I am a lifelong Republican, and I will probably die that way. That doesn't make me better, more right, more wrong. It's just who I am. And the only reason that I bother to say that is because it is fellow conservatives. It is fellow Republicans who, by and large, are the great majority of people who are packing evangelical churches like ours who are writing this off and saying that's just what the people who oppose Trump are trying to say and do. They're trying to make us believe something that isn't true. And friends, that's propaganda. I am a conservative saying to you, we, most of us in conservative life, believe the propaganda and it's messed up our thinking. So for a moment, could we just strip all that away and acknowledge COVID-19 does not respect party lines. It doesn't care if you're a conservative or not. So regardless of your position, could we just agree together for a few more months? We're going to have to work hard to deal with this. We're going to have to make some personal sacrifices. And we'll start at Freedom Church. Here, every time we gather, we'll still socially distance. We won't do the things we love to do of hugging necks and shaking hands. And we will put on the masks and we won't play the game of pulling them down here. We will wear masks when we're here. And if we don't, we're just going to do like they do on the airlines. We're going to smile at you and say, need you to put that mask back on. Need you to pull that mask back up. And it's not because we're trying to be ugly or, or harsh. We just respect each other and we want to keep each other safe. Fair enough? Can we all live with that? All right. I'll stop talking about it. I love you. We are going to get through this together. And we're going to pray that God just brings this thing to a screeching halt so that more than Pfizer or anybody else gets glory, that he gets glory. We're going to continue to ask him to do that. Wouldn't it be grand if right at the moment when this thing gets to its absolute worst and we're going, we're, we're just going to be done in by this, that God just draws a line and says, I'll stop it myself. That would be a glorious outcome. Until that day, let's do our part. All right. That out of the way, let's turn to the word. What I want to talk to you about today from the Word, if you'll pull out your outlines, is to me the most challenging part about prayer. It's the thing that can trip us up the most. 
I was talking to our small group about this last Monday night. I said, you know, if you had to just consider everything that Jesus said in the Gospels about prayer, think of everything that Jesus said about prayer, compress it down to just one or two or three sentences. What did Jesus have to say that's so memorable about prayer? Here's what I would suggest to you that it was. Your prayers matter. So pray boldly in faith expecting that the outcome of your prayers will be that things change, things happen. Is that a fair summary? I mean, that's really the astounding thing. Do you ever just step back from that and realize how amazing that is? That God who doesn't need us, who is all-wise and all-powerful, that he would say, Eileen, I'm going to let your prayers have a lot to do with the outcome of this situation. How crazy does that sound? That he would go, Forrest... Whether this happens this way or that way, I'm just going to let it hinge on whether you pray and believe. That's wild. And yet, isn't that exactly what Jesus said? I'm going to share just three verses. This is not in your outline, but this is three of many that I could share. You may want to just jot down the references. The first one is Matthew 21, 22, where Jesus said, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? John 14, 14 sounds a lot like it when Jesus says, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Somebody say amen. That's good news. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Now, as I said, we could go on and on adding more passages that sound just like these, but the message is pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus has said, I I am going to go to the Father on your behalf, and you can ask for anything in my name, and you can bet I'm going to be standing there interceding for you so that when you pray in my name, I will ensure that it happens. We hear that especially early on in our faith journey, and we get so excited about prayer. And a lot of us just began to pray boldly, believing God for things and seeing God do amazing things. How many of you could say, yep, I've been there. I've prayed bold prayers, believing these verses, and I've seen God do it. But how many of you could also say, but somewhere along the line, something didn't work? I prayed boldly in faith, and I asked God for a very specific thing, and it didn't happen. And it wasn't just a matter of waiting. It never happened. Anybody besides me ever experienced that? Three of us, four of us, all of us, everybody who's ever prayed about many things, you've had that experience. And that, when it's a really big issue, can create a great crisis for us. Why did God say no? Why did God not do the thing that he asked us to do? And that's what we want to talk about today. When God says no. Now, the Bible, as I say, it's full of promises from God concerning our prayers. One of the great promises from the Old Testament, one of my favorite verses from the Old Testament, is Jeremiah 33.3. You see the beginning of that on your outline. The Lord says, Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. I want to just home in on the first part of that passage. Call to me, and I will answer you. Now, of this you can be sure, 100% sure, God answers every prayer that we pray. Do you believe that? 
Okay, two of you do. Do you believe that, that God answers every prayer that we pray? He absolutely does. Now, the great challenge for us is the variety of ways that God answers. There are a lot of times where God's answer is yes. You prayed in faith, and I will do exactly what you asked for. I will do that thing. The problem, the difficulty, is that there are other times that God says no, or God says not yet, or he says in time, or when when you've done your part, or when you have grown some, I will do that, or yes, I will do that in my own way. All of those are valid answers from God, and a bunch of those answers are problematic from our perspective, don't you think? Those are the tough ones when we didn't just get an immediate yes. Now, it's one thing if what I'm praying for is that I'm going to get a new car to replace the one that I'm driving. It's another thing when the thing that I'm praying for is that somebody I love is going to beat cancer. It's another thing when I'm praying for a family member who's really yearning for God to give them a child and they still haven't had a child. I mean, it's the big things that life seems to turn on and we don't see God answering that. What are we going to do with this? This can be very confusing. And it may come as a surprise to realize that most of the greats of the Bible that we read about experienced these same things where they prayed for something and God said no. I mean, right on down the line to the giants of the New Testament church, Peter, Paul, do you realize even Jesus himself prayed and asked God for something, and the Father said no to it. If it happened to them, it's certainly going to happen to us, and this can be so confusing because, I mean, what's the answer to it? Why is it, I've certainly experienced this in life, why is it that some of the people who I've prayed for who are sick, sometimes seemingly minor illnesses, have been healed, sometimes instantly healed when they were prayed for? Sometimes... I've been a part of praying for people who were deathly ill, prayed for people that the doctors have called us in and said, this is it, this is your time to say goodbye. They're going to die tonight. Those kinds of situations. And God just moved and healed them, and they've been completely restored. I've seen God do that. I've seen it happen multiple times. Cancer that doctors can't even treat anymore. They're doomed, and God just steps in and says, I'll take care of that, and cancer's gone. I've been a part of those moments, and yet at the same time, I've been a part of praying in faith, believing God for healing. And people stayed sick. Pain continued. Or they died. And I know, I know we can all rub a little spiritual salve on that and say, well, they died, but they went to heaven, so they were perfectly healed. Look, we all know that, but we also know if it was your loved one, you didn't feel great about that just knowing that they went to heaven. Yes, that's a comfort, but that is not what you were praying for in that moment. You with me? I mean, does anybody besides me ever get a little bit frustrated by that when we immediately want to make it like, oh, get over it, they went to heaven. That doesn't always create a lot of comfort in the moment. And sometimes it makes you more hurt or more angry. I I wasn't ready for them to go to heaven. I'm going to miss them. What are we going to do with that? Now, sometimes, I'm just going to say this on the front end, sometimes we just have to admit it's just going to be a mystery. Until the day we die, we're not going to understand some of those. Some things that God does will will always be mysteries. But sometimes we can have some understanding of why God would say no. And sometimes when you really step back from it, it's a no-brainer why some of God's answers are no. Could could we just rehearse two or three of the no-brainer ones? 
I mean, you realize not every prayer that we pray can be answered by God. And that is not in any way limiting God. We all get that. God can't say, he cannot say yes to every prayer for obvious reasons. First of all, the first no-brainer, if you and I are praying for opposite outcomes, how can God say yes to those? If, if this person prayed for President Trump to be reelected and this person prayed for Mr. Biden to be elected, how can God answer both of those prayers? That's, that's not possible that both of those things can happen simultaneously. If I'm praying for Alabama to win the Iron Bowl and you're praying for Auburn, well, then you need help. No, I'm sorry. Then God can't. I'm sorry. Jesus loves all these two. He can't say yes to both of those if we pray opposing prayers. That's a no-brainer. I'll tell you another no-brainer. When you pray a prayer that requires God to violate somebody else's will, that's pretty much a, a no from the get-go. When you're praying, oh, Jesus, make her fall in love with me. Make him ask me to marry him. That's pretty much not going to happen as a result of your prayer. God's not going to make somebody else fall in love with you. God's not going to make somebody else marry you. That's not how God operates. He's not in the business of manipulating people in that way. So there, there are some no-brainers. And, I mean, another thing that to me is a no-brainer is the whole concept from the name it and claim it camp that every, you know, God's will is always to heal in every circumstance. How do you get to heaven then? Do you ever think about that one? When you're still praying for people who are in their 90s or 100 or beyond, every time they get sick, when you're praying for them to get well, I mean, at some point we have to exhaust that and go, God can't continue to say yes forever. Otherwise, we're never going to experience what he planned, and that is that we would be with him forever in heaven. So there are some obvious no's that are going to come from God. Those are the overly simple ones. But what about when God says no and it's not so black and white? What's that all about? Well, what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is share with you three different circumstances, three different reasons out of what maybe it would be a thousand possibilities of why God sometimes says no to our requests. And I'm going to say this with a major warning label. So please hear this. The warning is important, the caution. I put it in your outline. Of the things that I'm about to say, you can use these to comfort yourself or to, to mull over for yourself, but never use them for someone else in pain because you don't know the reason that God said no to their situation. Are you with me on that? It is incredibly out of line and dangerous for us to try and explain to other people why God said no to them when it's a really big, difficult situation and God himself hasn't explained it. And we're bad about doing that. Some of us are. Knowing the reason for terrible pain doesn't take away the pain. You, wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, if today... Your closest loved one, your spouse, your child, your best friend, whoever that is, if they suddenly drop dead, but then a doctor comes along three hours later and says, oh, I can explain that. It was a huge aneurysm that exploded. It was, it was on the aorta. Suddenly they were just gone. Or it was on the brain and an aneurysm exploded and they're gone. Or it was a pulmonary embolism or whatever the answer is. Are you suddenly comforted in that moment? Like, oh, well, I feel better now. I mean, I, I was afraid they just drank too much coffee this morning, and it took them out. But now I feel so much better to know that their aorta erupted. I mean, that is such a source of comfort. No, of course not. Information in itself doesn't bring comfort to those who are in pain. So we need to be real careful that we don't come in and try and be, you know, 
spiritual geniuses that are going to try and explain away the most painful things of life. If God didn't explain it, we better not try too hard to explain it ourselves. Wouldn't you agree? Job's a great example of what we're talking about here. You know, Job was in the... By the way, Job apparently lived in somewhere in the same time frame as some of the characters in Genesis. He's, he's ancient history. And in his days, he was the Bill Gates of his generation. Incredibly wealthy. And yet, in one day's time, all of his children were killed. Seven sons and three daughters. All of his livestock, which represented his, his wealth, were all killed in one day. And all of his servants, except for three, were killed in the same day. So, I mean, he is wiped out. And just a short time thereafter... His health is lost, and he's just got this terrible disease where he's covered in boils and in, in just unimaginable pain. And so the book of Job, it's a really peculiar wisdom book, but most of Job is actually comprised of, we get the events on the front end and the closing events on the back end, and all of these 30-something chapters in between, it's his three friends who come to visit him in the midst of his suffering. And the beginning thing that they do is just spot on. It's exactly what you do in the face of terrible pain. We've, we've said recently, you know, when someone that you love is going through a terrible experience of pain, the bigger the pain, the fewer the words you speak. If your friend just had a minor fender bender this week, you can talk your head off for two hours about it, and it won't matter. But if they just lost their child in a car accident, you better say very, very little. Because they don't need to hear you talking. They just need to feel your love and your presence. Well, Job's three friends came and they did exactly that for a week. They just sat and hurt with him. They did a great job. But then we find out for 30-something chapters what they did after a week. They started trying to figure out the cause of Job's pain and what Job must have done wrong and why God did what he did. And they spend chapter after chapter after chapter explaining their thoughts on why these bad things had happened in Job's life. And all they did was make it worse. And then what happens when we start trying to explain what God didn't explain? So God speaks in Job 42, 7, and he says, I'm angry with you, for you have not been right in what you said about me. My servant Job is the only one who spoke truth and got it right. There's comfort for us in that because Job, he voiced his frustration. He voiced his pain to God. And God's saying, I'm not offended by Job. It's okay to say, I don't get it, God. This hurts. This doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? God is not bothered by that. What is bothersome to God makes him angry. This one's super spiritual friends or family come along and say, oh, let me tell you what God was really doing there. And we may read that and go, yeah, those, those bad friends of Job's. And yet we probably better take a look in the mirror and say, how many times have we done a similar thing? Let me give you a here and now example. 2020 has been a doozy of a year so far, hasn't it? I mean, I don't remember any quite like it. And I've, I've been a little bit amused to listen to the number of Christians who are giving their spin on why God is doing the things that we attribute to him as doing in 2020. I mean, hasn't everyone heard a lot of the same spin? Clearly, this is the judgment of God. I mean, think about the things that have happened in 2020. In the Pacific West, oh my goodness, the forest fires have been horrible. I know we may not pay that much attention because we're 2,000 miles away, but they've never had a year like this in terms of the amount of damage done by forest fires. 
up and down California, Oregon, Washington. It's been awful. But the fires, the tropical events, I mean, do you realize that we have had twice as many hurricanes and tropical storms this year as what we would normally have in any year? It's, it's been bad. The pandemic. Listening to, to Christians try and give meaning to these things is somewhere between funny and disheartening. Because we have a go-to answer on this. You know what the go-to answer is, don't you? It's the judgment of God. God is punishing the sinners and doing these things. I don't know how many people I've heard say that. That's why this pandemic is coming. God is punishing America for, and then we fill in the blank, for whatever our favorite pet you know, sin is that we like to attack. God is punishing us for all the abortions. God is punishing us for sanctioning same-sex marriage or you know, whatever the thing is we like to rail against this week. And we say, this is the hand of God doing this thing. I've got some questions about that. Can I raise a couple? If all of these things are the hand of God punishing America for these specific things, let me throw out my questions. First of all, we love to make everything us-centric. It's all about me. It's all about America and our experience. If all this pandemic is about God punishing America, then why is it that most of the people who are dying of this disease live in other countries? I'm confused by that. Yeah, 255,000 of them so far lived in America, but more than a million of the people who have died from this pandemic live in more than 200 other countries. I don't think that God's aim is that bad. And the majority of the people who are dying are people who are elderly and are already struggling with other illnesses. And I don't understand why the judgment of God would be specifically targeted at the elderly and those who've already had to battle illness. That doesn't seem to line up with the character of the God that I find in Scripture. We love to point to a hurricane and say, that was God going after them there. I mean, especially if it hits New Orleans. We love to just go after them, don't we? I mean, especially when Katrina hit New Orleans. How many times did you hear people say, oh, that was God just punishing that sin city? Sounds good on the surface until you stop to think about it for about three seconds. And then you actually look at the story and you realize the people who were hardest hit, where the most lives and homes were lost, were in the most impoverished parts of New Orleans, while Bourbon Street and the Fritch Quarter fared quite well. They were back up and running in, in no time. You could go to Porno Row and get all you wanted of that just like that after Katrina, it seemed like. Once again, is God's aim really that bad? I don't think so. I'll tell you what I think. I think we tend to be like Job's friends. We like to explain tragedy so that it makes sense to us. But you may want to write this thought down. We are always on thin ice when we try to explain human tragedy that God didn't explain. And that's what we're doing. When we look at a tragic situation, whether it's personal or global or regional, and we go, that's why that happened to those people over there. If God didn't explain it, I'm going to do my best to just keep my mouth shut on what God said other than to say, let's love them, let's help them, let's show compassion to them. And in those moments when we want to talk about the judgment of God, <clears throat> let me be the first to say, God's justified to bring down judgment anytime he wants to on America. I mean, I'm, I'm quick to acknowledge 
there's plenty of reason that he could judge us. But if we're going to start talking about the judgment of God, let's at least be biblical about it. Peter was very clear in 1 Peter 4, 7. He said this, the time of judgment will begin first with God's own people, with the family of God. So if we're going to start talking about the judgment of God, apparently we in the church need to be prepared for it ahead of the rest of the world. So with that said, I'll mention just very quickly three three reasons that God may say no to things that matter to us. The first one is that God, <clears throat> excuse me, says no when or because he has a better perspective. God sees beyond the moment. He sees around the bend. He sees ten miles and ten years and ten generations beyond this circumstance as to how this will play out for years and generations to follow. Hebrews 4.13 says, He knows about everyone everywhere. Everything about us is bare and wide open to the all-seeing eyes of our loving God, of our living God. Nothing can be hidden from him. And the problem about our perspective is it, it's completely impossible for us to see unintended consequences. Now, I realize that this will be the vaguest thing that I'll say today, but I, I just hope that you'll carry at least the general idea here. And, and I know this isn't going to be very satisfying, but we at least need to accept it, that even though the outcome that we're asking for in a circumstance, we look at it and that situation in itself we're like, there cannot be anything wrong with what I'm asking for. How could God desire anything other than healing or, or for God to give this family that so longs for a baby or whatever the thing is? How could it be wrong to ask for that? It's not wrong to ask for that. But what we can't see that only God could see is that there's a line of dominoes sometimes attached to the thing that we're praying for. And while the thing that we prayed for by itself would just be good, but God can also see how years later things can come out of that and how it's going to impact other lives and other generations that are just unintended consequences. There is a bigger perspective that we will never understand this side of heaven. Proverbs 2.8 says, God guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be spared from all manner of suffering. But it does mean that God is always going to be with us. I mean, think about Paul and how God's bigger perspective impacted his, the course of his life. He longed to go to Rome, the center of the empire. He longed to plant a church there and minister in Rome. And at some point, it became clear God put that on his heart because he was going to go to Rome. But I don't think he ever dreamed how he was going to get there. He was going to get to Rome as a prisoner, and oh my goodness, what a journey it was to ever get there. Years in prison in Palestine before having to be shipped there, and the shipwreck and the hurricane to get there. I mean, it was wild. And he gets there, and don't you know the heart of Paul? He's like, God, I mean, I know I've been asking him to go to Rome, but it wasn't really to be in a dungeon. I mean, what is the deal here, God? I wanted to come here to minister and to preach. I mean, God, you put it in me to preach and to be a church planter. So, God, please open the doors of this prison. Set me free so I can do what you made me to do. And if you're Paul, don't you know that it feels like this has got to be the will of God? He is the greatest church planter in the history of the world and he's locked up when he's at the very heart of the empire. I mean, doesn't have to feel like this has got to be the will of God. But God, who has eternal perspective, is the, probably the only one who realizes, yeah, but while Paul is in prison in Rome, he's going to stop just preaching and he's going to start putting his words on paper. 
and the words that he would have just preached that would have touched lives in the moment, then they would have been gone. I'm going to slow him down so that he has to write them down. And he writes letter after letter after letter to the churches that he would have just visited and spoken those words with the result that a whole chunk of the New Testament is penned from prison in Rome. And the church globally for 2,000 years has been ministered to by that. Can we see a bigger perspective on a situation where prayer didn't get answered as was hoped for? Sometimes God's greater perspective causes what seems like in the moment a strange answer. The second consideration is that God says no when he has a better plan. Sometimes God is actually giving an unusual yes with a better plan than ours. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this. God speaking, this plan of mine is not what you would work out. Neither are my thoughts the same as yours, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Circle the word ways and notice that it is plural. God always has multiple options available to him, and God says, I will dream up plans sometimes that are what you never would have dreamed up. Let me just give you a a for instance. Suppose that through my own choices and through circumstances that I don't control around me as well, I get into a really, really deep hole financially. And I'm thinking all the while, I'm going to work my way out of it, I'm going to solve this, I'm going to get on top of this, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then the economy takes a real turn, and I land at a place that I realize I'm about to lose my house, I'm about to have to declare bankruptcy, there is no way out of this. And so in desperation, I do what any good Christian would do, I buy some lottery tickets and I pray for God to make me win the lottery. And I promise that I will tithe it and I will give money to plant churches and I will help people if God will just let me win the Powerball. Now you can bet I am not going to win the lottery. That is not going to be God's answer. I can pray that in faith till the cows come home. And you can bet that is not how God's going to answer that prayer. But you can also bet that God has multiple ways available that he will put in motion to help me out of that situation. But God's ways may not look like our ways. I'll give you, just again, using that example, I'll give you an illustration of that. God can get me out of that hole in a variety of ways. He may get me out of that hole in part by giving me a second job to work that helps me get out of that. He may help me to get a raise or a bonus where I already work. He may work supernaturally to significantly reduce my expenses so that I begin to make progress to get out of that hole. So that my roof never wears out and my tires never wear out and my cars never break down and we never have to go to the doctor. I mean, God does this in people's lives at times. A lot of different things that God can do. But you can count on this. God's ways will probably include stretching this out over time so that he has an opportunity to change my character and grow my faith in the process. His ways will almost always include that. And I'll tell you a little secret about that specific illustration. You can just bet that the thing that God will do along the way is teach us that a part of the process of getting out of this hole is learning to be generous, to tithe, and to freely give 
as we're working our way out. To which we all immediately want to resist and go, well, no, God, see, I promise you when I win the lottery, then I'm going to tithe. When you get me out of this hole, then I will give. But it doesn't make any sense to do that right now, God, because, see, I'm in deficit spending. And if I added another 10% of spending, that would only put me in a worse hole. So I can't do that, God. But I'm telling you, when I get out, generous is the word that will describe me. And God is saying, no, you see, my ways aren't like your ways. Your ways seem to make all kinds of economic sense, and my economy is a different economy. It's an economy built on the fundamental understanding that I am your provider in all things. That you're getting out of debt is neither tied to the lottery nor you finding a a high-paying job. It is tied to you depending on me and you learning to be generous. And the more that you give, and your faithfulness in the matter of giving the more likely you are to land in a position that you get to a better place and you experience the windows of heaven being opened up and blessing poured out on you to a level you don't have room to receive it all. That doesn't make sense until you begin to experience it. God saying, I have a better plan than the Powerball. You with me? We don't like that so well because the Powerball is instantaneous and God's plan of developing us takes time and can involve some pain. Hebrews 11:39 and 40 reminds us of another great truth about God's better plan. Hebrews 11 is the, the hall of faith in the New Testament and describes the great men and women of faith from the Old Testament. And in summation, the writer in verses 39 and 40 says of, of all of these greats of the faith, it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received What had been promised, God had planned something better. The point that he's making is this. You may want to jot this thought down. That God has all of eternity to fulfill his promises to you. God has made thousands of promises in his word to us. But he doesn't have to fulfill all of those in the span of 80 or 90 years. And some of the things that are going to be fulfilled will only be fulfilled in heaven. The story of Job that I referenced earlier, Job not only lost seven sons and three daughters, but he lost 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 donkeys in one day. At the conclusion of the story, God doubled everything that had been lost. God gave him 14,000 sheep. He gave him 6,000 camels. He gave him 1,000 oxen and 1,000 donkeys. But here's the interesting thing. He gave him seven more sons and three more daughters. We could look at that and go, well, that's kind of weird. God doubled everything, but he didn't double his children because he's now only got seven sons and three daughters. Oh, no, no. He doubled his children. He now has 14 sons and six daughters. But Job didn't get to experience the reality of that, enjoying their company, until he got to heaven. You see how that plays out. Some of what God gives, we experience it fully here on earth, and some of it you're never going to fully get it until you get to heaven. And that's just the tension that we have to live with. Sometimes God has a better plan. And aren't you glad? I think about some of the things that I longed for and prayed for. When I was in high school and the beginning years of college, man, I was on the track for med school. I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be good at it. I was going to make a lot of money in the process, but I was going to serve Jesus doing it. As long as I got to make a lot of money in the process. And I was working and praying to that end. I'm so glad God didn't answer those prayers. He had a better plan. You know, 21 years ago, 
I was living in Fairhope and serving as the student pastor of First Baptist Church of Fairhope. Wonderful church it was then. It is now a wonderful church. And that church went through a split in 1999. I was there to witness it. It was not pretty. And in the midst of the chaos that followed that split, there were quite a few people who immediately looked at me and said, You know what? You could fill that role. You could be our next pastor. You're very handy. You're right here at hand, and and you're available. We could just make you our pastor, including people on the pastor search committee that thought I would be a good solution for that problem. You want to know who thought that more than anybody else? I did. I thought that would be a fantastic solution to this problem. That would be quite a promotion. Go from youth pastor to senior pastor like that. And I started praying to that end. I wasn't trying to make it happen any other way, but I'm praying, oh, Lord Jesus, I think these people are on to something here. It's a good idea. Why don't you just swing that door wide open? I am so grateful that God didn't open that door. It's a wonderful church. I probably would have wrecked it. I, I mean, I served there for two and a half years. I can tell you, in retrospect, I would have been a terrible fit. My personality, my leadership, the specific things that God has pointed me toward probably would not have fit well there at all. I'm so glad he had a different plan. Almost nine years ago, I was going through a painful divorce. Is there any other kind? But I was going through a divorce and facing the possibility that I might be asked to resign the church that I had planted 11 and a half years before. And just praying, oh God, please don't let that be a part of what comes out of all this. Please, please don't let this be the end of that. And as much as I love that church and loved every day that I served church on the Eastern Shore, I am so glad that God did not answer that prayer the way that I prayed it. Freedom Church wouldn't exist if I had gotten the answer that I was looking for. Freedom Church in Fairhope. Freedom Church in Nigeria. By the way, can I tell you a little... Sweet thought about that. Last Sunday marked exactly six months since the first time that 20 adults got together for the first meeting of Freedom Church Nigeria. Six months into it last week, you want to know how many people showed up? 550 people showed up. That is crazy. And I just think, now you see, from my perspective, I'm thinking, oh God, what what you have allowed us to do in 11 and a half years, I've never been around anything like this. The growth, you've put us on multiple campuses and multiple communities. So many people have been reached. Why would you want to disconnect me from that? We've never seen growth. In my life, I've never seen growth like this. Can I tell you a secret? In the fastest, most glorious days that we ever saw in the 11 and a half years that I got to be at Coates, we never saw growth like what's happened in the last six months in Nigeria. You see, God had a better plan that I never could have dreamed of. And sometimes God says no to what we ask because he has a better plan. And then the third thought is this. God says no when and because he has a greater purpose. Psalm 57, 2 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. It's just a reminder. God always has a purpose in the world and he has a purpose for our lives And even though we pray in earnest thinking we're praying for the right thing, if what we're asking for is ultimately going to work against God's purpose for our lives and what he's doing, he won't let that interfere. And he is not obligated to explain what he does. 
Now, not everything that happens around us is God's doing. There are plenty of bad things that happen, sometimes because of random events, sometimes because of evil people, and sometimes they happen because we make lousy choices. But God is so good, if we are committed to serving Him, He says, I'm going to make sure my purposes for your life are fulfilled, and I'll even make those crazy bad things work their way into that. Peter said, we can take comfort in this. He says, the purpose of these trials is to test your faith, is fire test how genuine gold is. So if you feel discouraged, if you feel like your prayer life isn't working and it doesn't make sense why these things are happening, remember that God has a greater purpose for your life and even for your suffering. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. You ever just stop on a little thought like that and go, wait, what are you talking about, Paul? This is the guy who has spent years in prison, He has been stoned and left for dead. Multiple times he's been beaten 39 times with a rod, which is considered one less than the death penalty. He's been shipwrecked three times, and he spent a night and a day in the open ocean shipwrecked. And he says, it's small stuff, small difficulty we go through. Wow, yeah. He says, they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see right now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that we... That cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. What is he talking about? We don't look at the troubles we do have, but we fix our eyes on on this glory that we can't see with our physical eyes. What does he mean? He means that we set our hope on the goodness of God and the goodness of God's plan and his purposes. We don't know what form that's going to take. But when we're in the middle of a hard season, when we're going, oh, God, why can't you just do this one thing? Life would be so much better if you would finally just resolve this, just heal this, just take this away. Why won't you do this? And Paul says there's nothing wrong with praying earnestly like that. He says we don't get fixated on the problem or the pain. We keep our eyes looking beyond that. And remember that God is good, and He has a plan that is good, and He has a purpose for our lives, and He will even work this painful experience into fulfilling His good purposes for us. And so even though I don't know exactly what that's going to be, I trust the goodness of God. I trust the perfection of His plan, even though I can't see it. Does that make sense? So we look beyond just the pain that we're in. I'm your pastor, and I love you, and I want God's best for you, and I don't want you living the rest of your life in pain. But there are three things that you have got to know to get through the tough stuff. This isn't your outline in your outline, but I'm just going to spell it out quickly. The first thing you've got to know is this. Some things in life you are never going to understand, period. These are God's great mysteries. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, There are some things the Lord our God has kept secret. But there are some things he has let us know. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, Just as you'll never understand the mystery of life forming in a pregnant woman, so you'll never understand the mystery at work and all that God does. Some things you're never going to understand. Secondly, some things in life are never going to change until heaven. If I have an accident this week and it takes off my left arm, I can pray in earnest. I can pray for years to grow a new arm. And I think we can safely agree I'm not going to grow a new arm. There are some things that are going to happen that we're going to have to live with until we get to heaven or until Jesus comes back. And thirdly, sometimes you're going to suffer for the benefit of other people. Sometimes 
things aren't going to turn out the way that we wished. We'll suffer as a result, and God lets that happen because it is redemptive suffering for the benefit of others. I'm talking about the kind of suffering where you're going, why do I have to struggle with this addiction issue in my life or in the life of of my family member when I have prayed for so long that God would just heal this and take this away? Why do I have to continue to wrestle with this and it affect our family so much? And a part of the answer winds up being probably that that was some redemptive suffering because God was positioning you to help a lot of other people who have to deal with the pain of addiction or having a family member in addiction. And God is going to use that pain and that long-term struggle redemptively to help others. Why did I have to go through this grief? Why did I have to lose this loved one at such an early age? And God says, that is a tragedy, but I'm going to redeem that so that you're going to minister to others who've gone through the same kind of loss. Why, God, when I begged you to heal this marriage, I begged you to do what we couldn't do, and yet it still ended in divorce. Why would that happen? And God says, I want to use it redemptively to help other people who've been through divorce that you could not have hoped to really help without you going through a divorce. There are some pains that God is going to let us go through and use them redemptively. Now, having said all of that, I get it. That doesn't take away the pain. Even if you can say, all right, I think, yes, it was because God had a better plan or because God had a better purpose that he let this happen. I know that doesn't take away the pain of our most difficult situations. The better question is, what do I do when the answer that I'm asking for isn't coming? I'm just going to name three things quickly for you as we wrap up. First of all, what do you do when God says no? You trust that God does everything out of goodness and love. That God never does anything evil or unloving. Psalm 25.10 says all the ways of the Lord are loving. Romans 8.28, in everything God works for the good of those who love him. Now, in those moments, you can count on this. Satan is going to do his best to say, John, the reason that you didn't get what you asked for is because God doesn't give a rip about you. He's not interested in your prayers. God's not listening to your prayers, Butch. It doesn't matter to him. That's why you didn't get what you prayed for. And he will keep whispering that in your ear to try and convince you that God isn't good, that he doesn't care, that he isn't loving. And you can rest in knowing that God is loving and he's always acting out of love. But... This you have to accept, that I don't have to understand God's answer to know that it's motivated by love. Let me say that again because that's an important truth. I don't have to understand why God answered the way that he did to know that his answer was motivated by love. Now realize it's up to us how we're going to respond. We can resent how God answers and say, well, fine, if that's how you respond to my prayers, God, I'm not going to pray anymore. This, this doesn't work, so we quit praying or we quit going to church. We quit seeking a relationship with God, and we just resent it and walk away. That never works out well. We can resist it and fight it and do everything we can to make it happen ourselves. That usually doesn't work out well. Or we can continue to pray but just rest in the fact that whatever God does with this, I know he's good, and I know that he loves me, and I know that his answer was still rooted in love for me and love for the person that I'm praying for. So trust that everything God does, he does in goodness and love. Secondly, when in pain, pray what Jesus prayed when he was facing the cross. In the garden, Jesus prayed that God would would provide another way, that he would not have to go through the unspeakable 
pain and hardship that he was going to have to go through. In Mark 14, it says, Jesus went on a little further. This is on Thursday night, hours before he's going to be crucified. Jesus went on a little further away from the disciples. He fell to the ground and he prayed and he asked that if possible, he would not have this time of suffering. He said, Abba, Father, you can do all things. Don't make me drink this cup, but do what you want, not what I want. And that's the bottom line. When we're praying through this kind of difficult circumstance where we're not seeing the answer, do what Jesus did. Earnestly, with passion, ask God for what you need. But at the end of the day, keep a heart that's open that says, God, this is what I want you to do. But at the end of the day, I want whatever you want more than anything. That's what Jesus is praying. And then third and finally, when you're experiencing what feels like a no from God, expect God to give his grace to handle his answer. Even if it's an answer that we think just is unacceptable, expect God to pour out all the grace that's needed to handle whatever that answer is. This is God giving his strength and power to handle his answer, his power to handle the pain. Paul, we don't know what it was, but he he talked about having a cause of intense suffering in his life. We don't know if it's a physical ailment or what it was. But he talked about, in his letter to the Corinthian church, how three different seasons of his life, he just begged God again and again to take away what he called this thorn in the flesh, this, this source of intense pain. And he said, but God never did it. Here's what he said in summary about that in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, and each time he, the Lord, said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So Paul said, so now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me for when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying it's, it's in the midst of these sufferings that we don't just get to run past, that we really learn to lean into God and experience the grace of God to take us through real difficulty. Now, most of you know all too well the experience of our family in the course of the last couple of months. This whole idea of dealing with the no's that we get from God is very real for our family. Two and a half months ago, everything was going smoothly, and we got the news at the midpoint of, of Whitney, our oldest daughter's, that her, her first pregnancy had hit a major snag, that there were major problems with the baby's brain and heart and other, other issues. And so we began to pray in faith, believing that God was going to heal this child. I mean, not only were we praying in faith, but we were hearing prophetic stuff declared that God was going to do healing, that it would take some weeks, but that it was coming. We were believing God. We were praying earnestly for that. And, and instead of it going away, things got worse and things became complicated to the point that Whitney's health was very much in question and at risk. And so we've really began to pray in earnest, God, not only heal this child, but protect Whitney, and please let this pregnancy make it at least eight more weeks. And instead, it only made it six more days. And the baby came really early, and we're just praying, God, work a miracle, fix everything that's wrong here. And instead of things being fixed when faith was born, we discovered there were far more problems than we were previously aware of, that additionally, her her lungs were riddled with holes and her kidneys were severely underdeveloped there were all these other issues that were going on and we're just praying and begging god to work a miracle we know that he's able and we're asking and three weeks later faith died and i know again 
that the right Christian answer is. But she was made completely whole and, and all that's taken care of. And that's true. Praise God, that is true. But I'm simply acknowledging to you honestly something that all of us have to experience. That is not what we had been praying for. I mean, selfishly, I didn't want to watch my daughter, my son-in-law, go through the pain of burying their child. I didn't want to go to Colorado two weeks ago to help them plan a funeral. That is not the outcome we were praying for. We were praying in faith, believing that God was going to do something here on earth that was going to bring him much glory through healing a baby. And that was not the outcome that we had prayed for. But I do know this. What God did, he did out of love and mercy. And that the pain, no matter how great it is for Whitney and Sean right now, will be outweighed by the good that God works out of this. I don't know what that is yet. But I do know that we can fix our eyes on that thing we can't really see yet. That a good God will take this pain and will use it to help other people and that he'll get glory in that. And I also know that the grace of God, I have seen this, the grace of God has been poured out on them so that even when it just feels so unbearable, God makes it bearable. And God pours out compassion and friends reaching out and people loving them so that what you think you can't get through, you can get through because of the grace and the love of God. Expect the God to give his grace to handle his answer. So what I want to ask you is this. Is there something that you've been through that's caused you to question the love of God or the goodness of God toward you? Is there something that you're facing right now that you've just basically given up on praying for because you haven't seen the answers that, that you expected from God? And here's what I want to challenge you with. Don't shrink back from the promises that Jesus made to us in the Gospels. We should pray because our prayers matter. In the vast majority of situations, our prayers make a real difference. And even when they don't affect the outcome that we hoped for, we're still connecting our hearts to the heart of a God who loves us and wants to give us exactly what we really need. Maybe you need to just re-engage right now and choose to trust a God that you can't see. And trust that even though he didn't do what you thought he was going to do, that you still can trust him. Some of you may have gone through an experience like a divorce where you prayed that God would resurrect a marriage and now divorce has happened and that person's moved on and they've married somebody else and you realize that that is the end. It is over. And I want to remind you today that chapter is ended, but your life is not. God has begun a new chapter and he has a plan for the future chapters. You press into him. I close with Psalm 910, which says, Those who know you, Lord, will trust you. You do not abandon anyone who comes to you. God has not abandoned you. And he invites you today to trust him and to turn back toward him. Would you join me in prayer as we turn toward him? Father, you know every experience, every challenge, every pain that we've had to walk through. Those of us gathered here today, those who are watching and listening online. You know for some the pain is still really fresh. For some there is so much confusion and uncertainty because we've really come to a place of just wondering does God care? Does he notice? Does he listen to my prayers? What's wrong here? And I pray that you would just in this moment 
strip away the confusion and doubt and help us to rest in knowing that you are good that you love us you care what's going on and that you will pour out grace for our moment of need would you minister to hearts that are hurting right now and would you grant gifts of faith to us today If you realize that your heart has just sort of grown cold or dead or indifferent when it comes to believing God for the impossible, and there are some things that you've quit praying for, you've quit doing your part because of that, why don't you just start right now and just begin to hold the greatest needs and concerns in your life up before the Lord and just say, God, I choose today to believe that you are good and that you're going to work good. Hold that person, hold that circumstance up to God and believe the promise of Jesus that you can ask for whatever you want to in my name and it will happen. Expect the grace and power of God to be poured out when we pray. Oh God, grant us gifts of faith to believe you. Help us to put our trust in you. We pray this with grateful hearts, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.